0: warm welcome to those of you who are just now joining us. Um, We've already had our first afternoon session. Uh, The bad news is that you missed the bad news. The good news is that you got here in time for the good news. (laughs) Uh, I want to uh, extend uh, my thanks uh, to the consistory of this congregation uh, for the invitation to address you all this afternoon. Uh, It is not a secret to many of you that this uh, pulpit and this congregation are very near and dear to my heart. Uh, For uh, uh, Nicole and I often think with much fondness of our time spent here in the summer of 2018. And uh, this is a first for me, uh, having uh, you, Dear Heritage Reform Congregation, mixed with uh, my own congregation, Uh, in Pompton Plains, as well as other friends from Preakness, from the Free Reformed Church. It is uh, indeed a special opportunity to gather as the people of God. And I have to say, a somewhat unique gathering. I don't think I've ever been to a conference where we've had the Free Reformed, Heritage Reformed, and United Reformed Churches represented. Uh, So this is a blessing. Well, the subject before us this afternoon is the eye of tulip, which is often referred to as irresistible grace, irresistible grace. And we're going to be talking about what that means and how that comes to expression in the life of the believer. But I want to invite you to turn first in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, I'm not going to be preaching from Ezekiel 37, uh, but we have here a well-known account uh, from the life and ministry of the prophet Ezekiel that illustrates in a profound way the truth of what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. Uh, So I direct your attention to Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning with verse 1, and we'll read the first 10 verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God. Thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live. And ye shall know. That I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then he said unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Thus far, the word of God. Let's uh, bow our heads in a moment of prayer. O Lord, our God, we come to you yet again this afternoon, uh, being reminded, as we have been in the last hour and a half, of our own limitations and of the, the powerful impact of sin upon our understanding, and being reminded that we stand desperately in need of the illumining power of your Spirit this afternoon. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be present and active among us, uh, making us receptive to your word, softening the heart, that your word may fall as a good seed upon well-prepared soil, and that this word would bear fruit in the lives of all present this afternoon. Lord, may you be glorified in this uh, time together this afternoon, for we ask it all In the name of and for the sake of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So we are familiar with the acronym TULIP. We've talked about that a bit uh, over the last two days. Uh, But there is another way in which we can look at uh, the division of the canons of Dort. And that is uh, that there is uh, at least as it pertains to several of the heads, a Trinitarian division, uh, a description of of what the the three persons of the Trinity, um, what is their characteristic work in salvation. And so it was that we considered uh, last night the election of God, uh, a work that we attribute particularly to God the Father. And then following that, we spoke of the atonement of Christ, that price which the Son of God has paid in order to obtain, uh, to purchase those whom the Father has elected. And now we come this afternoon to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Really, uh, when we talk about regeneration, when we talk about uh, irresistible grace, when we talk about uh, the application of Christ's atonement, what we're talking about is a Reformed theology of the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to understand. Uh, there are many in our day who uh, would claim that the Reformed churches do not have much of a place for the Holy Spirit. And they would say that because we do not put in emphasis on the spectacular, whether in our worship services or in uh, the experience, uh, the Christian experience. We do not put an emphasis on the spectacular in uh, things like speaking in tongues and and prophesying and uh, so on and so forth. But make no mistake, we have a great place for the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, as we come to the Word of God and in our own Doctrine. That's what we want to consider this afternoon the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the outset, I want to ask you a question. Now, this is a long question, it is a carefully worded question, so you must pay very close attention. Is the grace of God the beginning, continuance, and accomplishment of all good? Even to the extent that the regenerate man himself, without prevenient or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperative grace, can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil. Now I know, that's a lot. We're going to go through it one more time. I I still have trouble reading it, okay? Is the grace of God the beginning of, continuance and accomplishment of all good, even to the extent that the regenerate man himself, without prevenient or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperative grace, can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil. What do you think? Now, if you're afraid to answer this question because you think I'm being tricky, you're right. You're right. This is a trick question. And uh, that's because this is actually the remonstrances, uh, the first part of the remonstrances fourth article or proposition. And it is posed, I posed it anyway, as a question to you. And the reason that I've done that is because if you come to the fourth article of the Remonstrance and you read it at first blush, it actually sounds somewhat like what we believe. It is very carefully worded. And I don't want to impute motive, but it seems very craftily worded. It's a slippery slope question, though. Now, a mistake that is sometimes made regarding the Arminian position is to say that it excludes the grace of God. Or to say that it depends, the Arminian position that is, depends primarily upon man and his will and ability. But that's not precisely where the point under question, uh, the, the, the difficulty is. You see, the question under discussion between uh, the Reformed position and anything that is not Reformed is not whether salvation is of grace. It's not, for that matter, even whether God or man is primary in salvation. For both Reformed and Arminian would agree that salvation is of grace. If you've spoken with an Arminian, you know that. They speak much about the grace of God. But I suspect that the average Arminian would also assert that God's grace is primary in salvation. But again, those aren't the questions that we need to ask. The question before us this afternoon is whether salvation is entirely of God's grace. Is salvation, from beginning to end, the grace of God? Now, a close reading of the fourth article of the Remonstrance actually suggests, not that, that salvation is a work entirely of God's grace, uh, but it suggests that God's grace is something like a cast, a matching grant, or what I'm going to call a floating gift. I don't know a better word to describe that third one. You can tell me later. But think about a cast, the, the, the uh, work that a cast does. Uh, boys and girls, some of you have probably broken a bone, sadly. Sadly. And uh, you've had the the bone diagnosed and uh, you've known the inconvenience of, of having perhaps your arm or your leg put in a cast. Now the question is, what is the purpose of the cast? Does the cast actually have healing power that it imparts to the bone? Or is it just something that holds the two broken ends together in order that the body may heal as it normally would? Well, some view the grace of God like that cast, simply a temporary thing that holds two broken parts together until healing can take place. Some view uh, salvation something like a matching grant. We're very familiar with this. Uh, A a charitable organization might be fundraising, and an individual or a corporation might step forward and say, uh, I want to put a certain amount of money toward this organization, but In order to unlock this donation, you need to match this amount dollar for dollar from other donors to uh, this charity. Some people think of salvation in that way, that God matches the human contribution to salvation. And others uh, take that view of the floating gift, as I'm calling it. And they say, well, this is, uh, this is how much has to be raised in order to uh, reach this particular goal or, or to achieve this thing. And somebody steps forward and says, I'm going to donate whatever you are not able to make up on your own. So you need $100,000. If you raise $60,000, I'm going to pitch in 40 dollars so that I bring you to a hundred. If you raise $90,000, I'm going to pitch in $10,000 in order to bring you to your hundred. And that is the way, very often, that salvation is viewed. In each of these cases, an ultimate goal is reached through cooperation or support. But is this the way that the Bible describes salvation? And our answer is a firm and resounding no. To suggest that salvation is in any sense the product of cooperation between God and sinful man is problematic on at least three levels. And I think you could probably, with some thought, come up with more. But consider, first of all, that to suggest that God's grace is supplemental rather than comprehensive is anti-biblical. Consider the following passages. Uh, we read in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, that is, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. Boys and girls, according to John chapter 1, how is Somebody, how does somebody become a child of God? Well, according to John, the answer is that such a person becomes the child of God, is born, if you will, as a child of God, not by the will of man, not by the wisdom of man, but of God. Likewise, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, I was a little afraid when Sam turned to Ephesians 2, but it turned out he set me right up. Um, And we read in these well-known verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That is, uh, uh, most uh, would take that to be referring not simply to the faith, but the, the whole salvation being referred to here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then thirdly, Paul says, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Notice the way that Paul actually draws together this idea of the election of god the eternal electing grace of god with god's salvation as a whole and this not uh, of according to our works paul says but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in christ jesus now we could add many many passages from scripture in this place that would all speak to the same basic point. But the point is this, that the Bible regularly and clearly teaches that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Secondly, it is uh, problematic uh, to assert that God's grace is supplemental and not comprehensive uh, because this is also to assume that sinful men have a capacity... That they do not. Now, we've just been uh, schooled in that, right? Uh, that the capacity of man, whatever the capacity of man is, it is not a capacity, a capacity to will and to do of God's pleasure. Not uh, apart from Christ, as we were reminded several times. So, to assert that man must cooperate with God is either to say something of man which is not true, biblically speaking. Or it is to deprive all sinners of any hope of salvation because it makes God to require of man that which he is incapable of and that which God does not himself provide. Then, thirdly, this teaching that the grace of God is made available to all men indiscriminately is problematic because it promotes pride. It actually feeds the pride of man while simultaneously depriving God of his glory in salvation. The idea put forward by many, as we heard uh, last night, is that Christ in his death purchased the possibility of salvation for all men. But that now it is left to each to make his or her own decision. While minimizing the value of the death of Christ, this also suggests that though all men are created equal, and all men have received an equal measure of grace by virtue of Christ's death, some Make better use of it than others. Now, this reminds me of Orwell's pigs. You guys know Orwell's pigs? All animals are equal. But some animals are more equal than others. That's really what this conception of God's grace does. Doesn't this fly in the face of what the scriptures teach? Again, Ephesians 2, verse 9, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Consider what Paul says additionally in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 30. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, that's L-E, noble, not E-L, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? That as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, to undermine the particular and comprehensive grace of God by necessity actually feeds pride. Because then, ultimately, salvation is caused to depend upon one's own use of the grace which is given. And this suggests a world in which there is no meaningful sense, in which all are alike sinful and fallen short of the glory of God. All of these are reasons that mitigate against this position. But now let's consider the positive contribution of the Reformed understanding expressed in Canons of Dort uh, had 3 and 4, particularly 4, uh, to this idea of salvation. Now, as I mentioned several minutes ago, it is here that we come to consider the Reformed conception of the work of the Holy Spirit, now, as many of you know, heads three and four of the canons have been combined since the canons, uh, or since the synod of Dort. Uh, boys and girls, if you look in the back of your psalters, you'll see that you have head one, head two, head three and four, head five. It doesn't make any sense according to our numbering because head and th- three and four are brought together. So why not make that head three? Well, I remind you that they're distinguished because they are responses to the third and fourth articles of the remonstrance, but they are combined because they were considered inseparable. So they paired up the two URC guys to sack race together. We each take half. And these are inseparable because... Our understanding of the total depravity of man requires an explanation of how anyone incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto may come to enjoy the blessings reserved by God the Father in election and secured by the blood of Christ in his atonement. Now, what our method is going to be in our remaining time together this afternoon is I want to uh, give you a summary of what I see as the most uh, distinctive emphases of the Canons of Dort head four. And I'm, I'm collapsing here because every article uh, of which there are 16, uh, I think in my section it, uh, it's roughly 12, or uh, 10 rather, Um, Every article brings its own contribution to the table, but I've tried to collapse these a little bit uh, so that we can get them down to six, hoping that that will make it a little bit easier to remember. But the first of these distinct emphases is this, that God's word, more particularly, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the chief means that God uses to save sinners. Isn't it fascinating to read from Ezekiel 37 as we have? For what is it, what, what is it that, that the Lord told Ezekiel to do? Son of man, do what? Prophesy, right? He is simply to speak. And, and by the way, what he was to speak was not left up to his own imagination. That's very important. But God actually put the words in his mouth, gave him the script, so to speak. So it was the very words of God that were to proceed from his mouth. And when the words of God uh, proceeded from his mouth, something that was truly remarkable began to take place. Because those dead and dry bones began to shake, and they came together, and they began to be covered in muscle. And before you knew it, there was an army of inanimate, fully clothed, if you will, human beings. Much like What we read in Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? And God said, and it was so. Well, the same is true, you see, of the gospel. The same is true of uh, the impartation of the saving grace of Christ. That it actually comes through the preaching of the word of God. That it comes through the reading of the word of God. And this is very important because in 2022, let's be honest, much of the evangelical world does not think preaching is all that relevant. But instead, we need to dress up our worship in order to be seeker-friendly. People, when they come, what, what, what do people call worship in the worship service? The Music. I hear it on the radio stations all the time. Uh, It talks about, when you need to worship, turn to our station. They're not playing sermons. They're not playing the reading of the word of God. But they're playing music. And sadly, it is true that this has so infiltrated the Reformed mind that we say the same thing about the worship service. But you understand that from beginning to end as we are in the presence of God and most especially so as we come under the reading of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God that God is speaking. And as He is speaking, He is imparting life. He is breathing life. You see, God's Word is the chief means that God uses to save sinners. And by the way, this isn't a, a, simply a New Testament thing. For the canons of Dort go so far as to say, this is truly radical, that this is the way un, in which people under the old covenant were saved. Through faith in the Messiah and on account of belief of the word of God which was proclaimed to them. This is the reason, then, that we as Reformed believers take so seriously the work of Bible translation, why we should be strongly supportive of missions around the world, not least of all, by the way, to North America. We need missions and preaching. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, several verses there. He says also in Romans chapter 10, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. What does it take to reach the Muslim world? Let's find out. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it take to, build, uh, to, to uh, do church ministry in Patterson? Let's find out. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? By the way, another application. This is why we take training preachers so seriously. This is why we take the pastorate so seriously. Young men, I wonder, have you considered the possibility of, that God's call might be for you to be trained for the ministry. It's not a glorious job. (laughs) Sometimes it's painful. It requires sacrifice, but it is the most wonderful job in all of the world to herald Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need more preachers because God's word Particularly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the chief means that God uses to save sinners. Secondly, a second distinctive of the canons is that God's call through gospel preaching, the call being this simple, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his call is serious. What do we mean by this? Well, what we mean is that when the word is preached, God's revealed will... And God's revealed way are both declared in earnest. None responding to this, uh, in faith to this call will find it void or empty. Now some, uh, particularly in, in various Reformed circles, sit under preaching for many, 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 many years. Hearing Christ proclaimed, but saying, I don't know if Christ is for me. They sit in worship services, perhaps uh, asking the wrong questions. Am I elect or am I not? How do I know if I'm one for whom Christ died? Or how do I know maybe I'm not? You see, these are the wrong questions. These are never questions that the Bible enjoins upon the person who's sitting under the preaching of the gospel. The, the, The command that is enjoined upon everyone listening to the preaching of the gospel is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You see, there's a command and there's a promise adjoined to it. And God is expressing himself seriously. How awful would it be? I hope you've never had this experience that you showed up at a party that you weren't invited to. I've not had that, but that would be terrible. You get to the door and somebody looks at the list. They say, You're not invited. Nobody has ever had that experience with Jesus. No one. For Jesus actually says this, uh, John 6, and this is a collation, okay? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Fact, okay? But then he goes on to say, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Um, he, the, 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 this isn't conditioned on whether you're elect. It's not conditioned on whether or not Christ died for you. It's conditioned on who uh, hears the declaration of God's word and who responds to the declaration, the proclamation of Christ in faith. Because God's call through gospel preaching is serious, or you might use the word sincere. God isn't making empty promises to a, uh, a subsection of the congregation or of the world in the preaching of Christ. God has never made and will never make an empty promise. Thirdly, a third uh, distinct line of thinking in the canons is that no one's lack of obedience to the call of God in the gospel is due to any fault in God, in Christ, or in the gospel. But rather, this lack of obedience is attributed to a person's sin. See, here's the interesting thing about preaching, right? We're going to get to this this passage in a minute that we'll quote um, word for word. But this idea, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, that the, 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 the natural man does not discern spiritual things. They're foolishness to him. We're going to talk about that. But let's, uh, let's be very clear. When we gather from week to week, it's not a bunch of gobbledygook that's being said from here. As the word of God is opened, it comes forth to us in what we call propositional truth. It, is, it comes forth in factual statements that carry meaning. And, and the, those factual statements, they actually resonate, uh, uh, resonate with the human mind. You see, when, the, when Christ is declared as crucified for sinners, when the, the call to repent and to believe is issued, the natural man understands this, assuming that it's spoken in his or her language. It's not foolishness in that sense. It's not the, that the words somehow mysteriously become jumbled up in their minds. No, that's not what happens at all. They evaluate it, and they discard it. It penetrates the mind, but it doesn't penetrate the heart. You see, this is due to a person's sin. This is due to the depravity of man. God did not create man depraved. But as we were reminded this afternoon, he created him good, perfect, in the image of God himself. And if anyone fails to respond in obedience to the call of God in the gospel, that is due to his or her sin. Well, fourth and closely related, another uh, line of of reasoning in the Canons of Dort article or uh, had four is that every believer's believing response to the gospel is due to the grace of God, not to the right exercise of man's will. This is important for us to remember. For what do we have that we have not first received? If you sit here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're resting in Him through faith, that is the gift of God. That's something that God has worked in you distinct from the unbeliever where the truth has traveled from a a place of propositional, intellectual uh, observation down to heart level belief, assent and trust leaning upon Christ. And that is nothing short of a miracle because as we read again in um, uh, Article 3. That. Uh, all men are conceived in sin, by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. Where do you think they got that language from? Now, they were linguists, clearly, because we can't seem to write anything as beautiful as the things that were written in the 16th and 17th centuries. And I agree with Pastor Lewis, who said that the canons of Dort, far from being cold, are the warmest of all of the Reformed confessions. I I, I believe that. I Uh, concluded that a long time ago. But it's not that that they're just simply writing in 17th century English, and and, uh, they they sat around and they looked at each other and they say, well, you know, what, what idea do you have, brother, and what idea do you have? They came to the Word of God. Their idea is drawn from this book, And they clearly concluded that every believer's believing response to the gospel is due to the grace of God and the grace of God alone. John 6, again, a compilation. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Do you believe? If so, that is the work of God. All that the Father, he goes on to say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There, there's not going to be an elect person or persons who somehow remain outside of the sheepfold uh, that they were chosen, but they failed to come uh, because either A, the gospel didn't reach them, or uh, B, they didn't understand the gospel, or C, they, they saw the gospel and, and they did not respond to it in faith. Those are fictional categories. They do not exist. For Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me I should lose nothing. And then he says, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. Think about that. If you belong to the fold of Christ you have been drawn by Jesus the good shepherd you did not arrive in the fold by accident you did not arrive as the result of your excellent reasoning you did not arrive because you made a better use of God's grace than the person next to you who did not arrive you arrived because the father drew you well fifth a fifth uh, distinctive line, uh, outlined in head four is that the Holy Spirit works in a particular and effectual way in those whom he converts, illuminating the mind, softening the heart, and infusing the will with new qualities. See, this is the beautiful thing. We were confronted with what seems to be an immovable obstacle when we talked about Head 3 and the depravity of man, because what we concluded is that all men are alike under sin, all men are alike fallen away, all men are sinners, and they have not actually the capability in them, by virtue of their sin, to believe. And by the way, it's not that they're trying to believe and God is restraining them. You see, there is no desire. There is is a fictional category that has been invented of those who would believe, but have been prohibited by the fact of God's election. And False. That person does not exist. That person does not exist. Because it is... Uh, It is outside the very personality and character of a dead in uh, trespasses and sins sinner to desire God. Rather, as we were reminded, we are only enmity toward God in our natural state. But the thing is, is that God enters into the picture much in the same way that he does in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. And as he comes in, he does a uh, marvelous work. Uh, Article 11 of Head 4 says this. When God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect or works in them true conversion, he not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them and powerfully illuminates their mind by his Holy Spirit, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of the man. He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. Love that word. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. And all of this by his word and by his spirit. And and all of this, by the way, the way in which the canons picture it is is not something that takes place over an extended period of time. But but that that the spirit of God, that, that process of coming under the word of God, that may be for a very long time. But when the Spirit of God actually enters in, it's as if He touches the will, and what the will does is the, the immediate response of the will, touched by the Spirit of God, is to reach forth its hand in faith, that God has infused that will with an entirely new desires. And we are irresistibly drawn. Another caricature. The, the, the believer dragged kicking and screaming by the hair into the kingdom. That's the wrong understanding of the word irresistible. We know what it is to encounter things that are irresistible, as we say, and and it's like a magnet. We we can't. Perhaps it's a food. I hope it's not. I I, I hope it's uh, at least a person in your life. And you just gravitate toward that person. You want to be by them. Uh, To be with them gives you pleasure. And so it is with the will that God has infused with new qualities. It responds willingly, arms wide open. Abba, Father. Have mercy, Lord Jesus. This is the way in which this is described in the canons. It's the way that it's described in the word of God. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, uh, how many times did you hear the message of Christ in him crucified before one day you heard the message of Christ in him crucified and it was as if you heard it with new ears and you say, I've been coming to this church for years and I swear I've never heard that. Now many of you have grown up in the church, as did I, and yet I actually had that experience in my life that I look back and I say, was the gospel preached for 25 years where I was? Because I don't remember hearing it. But then my day came, and I heard the voice of the shepherd calling me, and I could not stay away. He goes on to say, he says, My speech, chapter 2, my preaching, that we're not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Later in chapter 2, he says, No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Listen to this. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. God. This is because the Holy Spirit works in a particular, that is, individual and effectual, that is, irresistible, achieving the purpose for which he sets forth, particular and effectual way in those whom he converts. And he infuses, he illuminates the mind, he softens the heart, he infuses the will with new qualities. Sixth, and finally... A final distinctive is that faith is not simply offered to man to be accepted or rejected. Uh, There's that classic, you know, what do you do if somebody offers you a gift? You know, and and, and we're not going to go further down that. But the confession, uh, our, our canons actually say this, rather it is, quote, conferred, breathed, and infused into him. He who works in man both to will and to do produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. You see, it doesn't come without batteries. Faith doesn't come without batteries. It doesn't even come with a switch that you have to turn on. It doesn't come in that ridiculous children's packaging that takes two hours to get undone. But when, when the Spirit of God actually imparts faith, it is, it, it's complete. There's this, uh, it's like one moment there is not, and the next moment there is unveiled this work of God inside of the heart. I believe. How can it be? It is the work of God. Paul says, Philippians 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. So then in uh, these few minutes together, we've uh, unveiled several caricatures and we're going to boot them out of the sanctuary now. The noble pagan, again L-E, that's saved apart from the preached word of God. The Bible does not know of any such category. How shall they believe if they have not heard? So we must be in the work of missions, We must be immersed in the work of missions. That is the call of God on our lives. Secondly, the idea that Reformed theology treats people as stocks and blocks. Uh, A more accessible uh, illustration for us would be like a puppet or a robot. Uh, Something that's either being manipulated by somebody's hands or something uh, that is pre-programmed to respond in particular ways to various stimuli. But we don't find that in the canons of Dort, and we don't find it in the canons of Dort because we don't find it in the Bible. But we, what we find is that when God enters into the life of the sinner and confers his grace upon that sinner, it's a coming alive, a recreation. A resurrection from the dead. These are all images that are used in the word of God for this experience. And there is a sweet response, a heartfelt response, not a programmed response. Nor then are there sinners who are brought unto salvation against their own will. The Lord says, in one sense you might say that that is true, of course, because it's against all of our will. Uh, But but that that, uh, you would actually have somebody who, who is a converted child of God who's still kicking and screaming, saying, I don't want to be here! It's silly. It's nonsense. It doesn't exist. And then fourth, that some sinners earnestly desire to be saved apart from the regenerating grace and influence of the Holy Spirit. That's just simply not possible. I have heard it said, by the way, in circles that are familiar to us, something along this line i earnestly desire to be saved but god hasn't worked in my life yet <laughs> that's not biblical if you truly have that desire you have that desire because god is calling you but maybe maybe it's actually a spiritual laziness maybe that's your own way of resisting the call of god but he calls again tonight, repent and believe, and you shall be saved. So then the Reformed doctrine does not undermine evangelism, rather it promotes it. But the Reformed doctrine of salvation also, by the way, this is actually contained in the canons of Dort, encourages prayer to God for unconverted Friends, family members, neighbors, because he alone can bring the dead to life, thereby renewing the will and creating faith. Thirdly, and this is a word in season, I hope, the Reformed doctrine of salvation promotes humility. The most incongruous thing you can meet is a proud Reformed person. And yet I seem to meet scores of proud Reformed people. Why shouldn't we be proud? We have the best doctrine under the sun. We shouldn't be proud because the one who truly understands these doctrines is brought lower than low. The one who truly understands these doctrines says, I could never have understood this. I did not want it in and of myself. This is all the work of God. And by the way, the fact that I have any interest in the Bible, what the Bible teaches, and any understanding of what the Bible teaches is the grace of God. And that alone. And then fourth and finally, the reformed doctrine of regeneration and of salvation more broadly exalts the glory of God. I worked with a sold-out Arminian once. I've actually only met one Arminian in my life who says, I'm an Arminian. And, and, And actually, like... In the same way that I say I'm Reformed, he says he's Arminian. More often you meet the the garden variety, right? Uh, People who cling to those ideas. And he says, I'm an Arminian. He says, oh, I've read. I'm familiar with the canons of Dort. I've read uh, many Reformed documents. And he said this to me. You know what I love and appreciate about the Reformed doctrine? Is that it exalts God to the highest. It glorifies God to the highest, but I don't believe it. It's horrible. But the Bible humbles man to the lowest of low, and it exalts God. It exalts Jesus. And it brings comfort to the heart, hearts of broken sinners like you and like I. Thank you.